to Selling Your Business with David King. I'm David King, and I'm joined again by Kirk Mitchie with Candor Advisors. Welcome, Kirk. Thanks, David. Good to be back. I've had this podcast now for just under two years, and it's it's been fun. It's been informative, and there's not one single guest who's been back on twice much less a guest who's been on three times. So, Kirk, um, maybe just your your agent makes it easier to get you on my calendar for <laughs> a variety of other reasons, but Kirk has information. It's the reason that I say you're looking to sell. Talk to Kirk first. He is the man who can steer you straight. Kirk has got more than 30 years of experience working with entrepreneurs and closely held businesses and high net worth families, helping them to achieve their strategic and legacy objectives. He's worked in, in mergers and acquisitions in a variety of different settings. He's raised and deployed more than a billion of capital, and he's worked on the purchase of more than 21 businesses and the sale of more than 30 businesses. His range of M&A experience is, is unlimited. Uh, in, in addition to all that technical and financial wizardry, Kirk also has some touchy-feely skills as well. And so I'm interested in hearing this today. He's got some interesting subject matter that we're going to discuss uh, in addition to kind of talking about the general state of the market again. So Kirk, what is the fear of missing out? <laughs> well, so so David, we, I mean, Candor Advisors handles um, one kind of client, successful business owners in three different ways. They're either people that are pretty convinced that they're ready to go to market and they're not sure who to call first or next. Um, they need a great M&A lawyer like yourself um, and they might need an investment bank, right? And so we will help to build the deal team for a client like that. Um, for a lot of Candor's clients, a uh, sale is out in the future. We help them work backwards from an ideal sale price and terms standpoint using some proprietary due diligence questionnaires to make sure that they optimize the things that they're going to get paid more for and they minimize the things that could diminish or even derail their transaction. And the third type of client we work with or the third segment of that kind of client is, you know, folks with a capital problem, maybe the co-founders no longer see eye to eye and somebody needs to buy somebody out, or maybe you've got um, divorcing spouses who owned a business and it's no longer tenable for them to work on it together. Um, or maybe there's just a bad um, capital partner involved that needs to get taken out. And we help to solve those kinds of problems. I think, I think the first time we were together, I referred to that as the Ray Donovan part of our business where we just solve problems. And, and I had to make, I had to clarify that I don't drive a Mercedes CLS and it doesn't have a baseball bat in the trunk. Um, so, you know, we solve problems that way. So my, my um, you know, my comment to you about FOMO, I think a lot of people, um, certainly in technology and in venture capital investing are, are familiar with fear of missing out, right? So the idea that, you know, we've got this kind of reptilian brain that says um, there's something going on. I need to be a part of it. And um, let's let's rush towards it. And so we end up taking 
a lot of calls and responding to a lot of emails from business owners that um, they don't say it quite this way. But I would say that the inquiry is coming in. Look, I'm reading about a lot of M&A activity. I'm hearing about a lot of people selling their businesses and maybe I should be selling mine. And that might be true. I mean, look, there's literally trillions of dollars out there um, held by strategic buyers and financial sponsors looking to be put to work to buy businesses um, of the kind that you and I advise. Many of those business owners, however, when they're kind of in this reactionary mode, haven't done things that um, they really need to do before they think about selling. And um, so that that FOMO, if you will, is just, you know, that's catalyzing people in the current moment to rush towards potential sales. And it may or may not be the right thing to do. This market right now, though, isn't it an optimal time for a lot of people at least to look into it, at least to give you the call and say, this is where we are, our financials, our capital situation, the ownership situation, um, the, you know, the peak of our market, etc. Isn't this a good time in this market or is it starting to cool off? What are you seeing out there? So we haven't seen... Um... We haven't really seen cooling in terms of like multiples coming down. Um, we're seeing buyers be a bit more discerning, which is usually what happens before multiples start to come down. Um, and by multiple, I just mean the, the, the number of times the transferable economics usually referred to as adjusted EBITDA, the number of times that that um, uh, metric get paid to buy a business. So, you know, let's say you have 2 million of, of adjusted EBITDA and somebody's willing to pay you eight times the $16 million transaction, right? So we haven't seen the eight drop to seven yet, but we have seen, um, especially among the private equity buyers who've been leading this charge this time, historically it was strategic buyers, but this time it's private equity buyers. They have started to get, I would say, pickier and more discerning about what they will or won't do. Um, you know, so, so, but there's still plenty of money out there that, and it is an ideal time to sell in terms of sentiment in that if your company's ready to go, mm -hmm. um, or if your company is 90% of the way ready to go, the timing might be so good that the 10% that you would take the next 18 months to do is worth foregoing because, you know, maybe by 18 months from now, things will have kind of slowed down. Yeah. But for people that really aren't quite ready, like um, let's say that they've never even had their financials reviewed or compiled, much less audited, and they don't really um, run their company on kind of an accrual or generally accepted accounting principles basis. It's more like cash or modified cash. And they haven't kind of systematized their processes and they haven't really built, you know, kind of a management infrastructure to the company. They'll find a buyer out there, but that buyer might be kind of opportunistic and, um, you know, they'll get the deal done, but they might accept terms that, um, you know, with two more years of building, even if the sentiment is different, they'd be able to be in more control of the terms and be able to you know, be a little bit more of a terms maker than a terms taker. Understood, understood. Now, the imposter syndrome, and I have heard a bit about this, 
uh, and it's real. And uh, in Ron Burgundy's words, it's science. It's true. <laughs> and I've heard of a, 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 a symptom or you know a syndrome, this syndrome, where there's been injuries to the amygdala uh, because of the way that the brain works and the emotive part of the brain trumps over the logical part of the brain. It always does that people will walk in, people who've had this injury to their amygdala, and they will see their own loved ones, their parents, their children, and their siblings, and believe that they are imposters because they don't have the feeling of love and emotion for them. So, but if if they hear them first, so they take out their phone and call them before they see them, then the emotions are going and uh, and they don't have the imposter syndrome. I assume this might be something different. Yeah, although um, I will tell you that that, um, I think you nailed it. I don't know. I, I don't know if you went to uh, medical school before you went to law school, but um, <laughs> I think you nailed the kind of the scientific explanation. I'm talking more of a, kind of the pop culture phenomenon of how we can all and you know i suffer from this just like any business owner suffers from this just like um you know uh, lebron james probably from time to time suffers from this and that is the idea that you know i'm not quite good enough or um you know i'm i'm kind of punching above my weight class or I don't deserve to be in this conversation or and where it shows up with business owners is, you know, one of the thing I told one one thing I told a guy that I'm working on a transaction with right now, whose deal is going to be just under $20 million by the time it's all said and done. The initial offer was about $12 million. And we helped the buyer to see more value without being doing anything manipulative. And we helped to structure the transaction so that the seller could get paid for some things that weren't obvious to the buyer, right? So, you know, we, we you know, obviously created a bit of delta in there. And when I was talking to the seller and he was aware, just because there was a press release on it and our firm name was involved, he was aware that we had just worked on a transaction that was $215 million dollars you know, his imposter syndrome kicks in, like, what are you doing working with me? And, you know, one of the things I told him was that, you know, first of all, we charge monthly consulting fees, we're not paid like investment bankers. So we're not indifferent to whether a transaction happens. But we don't want to um, incentivize ourselves to get a piece of a transaction when that would cause us as things get closer, even if it's not the right thing to do, to push to get the deal closed so that we can earn our fee. So that's one of the pieces. But the other thing I told him is that the people that sold the $215 million company and, and you know him and his management team were very similar in their kind of emotional inputs to the deal. They overreacted to some perceived, um, you know, slights or kind of accusatory and invasive due diligence. And we had to walk them in off the ledge on that. Um, they weren't quite sure what to do with some of the buyer's questions and the buyer's positioning. And, you know, we had to kind of counsel them around that. You know, people are people. So while, you know, working on a seven, eight, nine, 
or even 10 figure deal, there are different things. There are nuances. There are, um, you know, usually more people involved. There's usually uh, more complexity in financing the human emotions and specifically, you know, kind of the imposter syndrome of the person who's in the middle of a deal who's about to get eight or nine figures can cause a little bit of a crisis of confidence. And usually what ends up happening is um, their fear comes out. They don't think of it that way. They don't call it that, but they react angrily or as if they've been slighted to, you know, what is oftentimes a, a, a neutral request. Why'd you use that accounting treatment? Or, um, you know, <laughs> how, how, why are you doing this this way? It's a simple answer and they react mm -hmm. poorly. And, you know, usually there's some of that imposter syndrome in there. I see that all the time. Maybe they don't hear their own voice, so they don't realize it's really you there. And you really have, it's you who built this valuable enterprise. Right. And, and I see that in deals uh, as, you know, and I also see it with companies as they're working up to being ready to go out to a deal. Uh, it's kind of like in the movie, The Jerk, uh, the where Steve Martin had made all this money and he was still living in a crappy apartment and had a butler and a maid and everything. They're like, sir, your, your, your accommodations are a little bit beneath your income these days. I, I have clients, so I'll be working with clients that have solid financials. And yet their, their infrastructure, they, it needs a little bit of enhancement. They don't realize how valuable their enterprise is because they're the ones who built it all these years, the same old, same old. So it really does take a little bit of work to get them used to the idea that you've built something bigger. It's worth a little bit more. Get it all polished up and then you can get it sold it off. Sold yeah, off. that's really well said, David. I mean, that, that, that is it. I mean, first of all, you had me when you started talking about Navin Johnson and Kirk, which, but you know, and it, this is the first time I've ever been involved in, in, you know, any professional setting where he got referenced. So, you know, let's, let's just mark that important moment it's in it's history right now. But it, yeah, that, um, in one of the places where, and I'm sure you've seen this too, where that's going to work against the seller is if the seller continues to be, um, connected to all the biggest relationships and doesn't hire a VP of sales because he or she likes being connected to all their best revenue sources. And they haven't hired a controller or a CFO because you know their assistant QuickBooks and their outside accountant can get things done well enough and they don't have to pay another $80,000 a year for you know somebody who's going to be on staff. And they continue to outsource a bunch of functions rather than build them in-house. To a buyer, some of those things look like the company is not yet professionalized and it is um, a little precarious as it relates to certain risks. And those things will count against the seller. So the seller might be maximizing their EBITDA, but what the buyer might do when they look at this, the seller's proposed adjusted EBITDA is they might make adjustments backwards and say a business this size needs a controller. So we're going to take $90,000 out of your EBITDA and repurpose right. it there. Right. Exactly. And, you know, you need a chief operating officer and you need a VP of sales. So we're going to add 350 um, to your expense structure and thereby reduce your EBITDA. So 
you know, the, for the business owner that kind of doesn't recognize that they are running something really, really valuable. I think about us as, you know, we're, we're not Don Quixote. We're Sancho Panza. We are the guide. Um, he's the hero. He's on the hero story, the business owner. Um, but to your point, you know, we've got to help them look in the mirror and say, look, here's who you are right now. I don't care who you were when you started this business. Mm-hmm. The resentment towards your former employer at your kitchen table with a small severance package. Here's who you are right now. Right. And you need yes. to show up for meetings as that person. Yes. Right. And so we get them ready. The business, they, they appreciate how valuable they've become. They, they realize that they've got a place at this table commanding this type of attention and this type of price. So what are the foundational elements of selling? Hmm. Well, no matter how unique you want your business to be or think it is, um, the financials are going to drive um, valuation, right? So that piece is what I would call um, the primary kind of foundational aspect. Um, the, the steps, and, and this may or may not be answering your question, but, but the, the process will work something like this. Um, you'll have a buyer, whether it's um, the business development person at a private equity firm or um, you know, a supplier who's a strategic who might want to own your company rather than continue to um, you know, pay you to do what you do. They will make an inquiry. They'll sound you out about whether you're interested in selling. And you'll find that attractive. We all want to be wanted. And um, the idea that we could kind of stop working, take a big chunk of money and ride off into the sunset is interesting to most of us, unless we're really, really early on in the business's life. So we say, yeah, sure. And they send over an information request. The information request is what we at Candor Advisors call early due diligence. And don't give up too much too soon. Do not, you know, a a buyer does not need to know much more than a couple years worth of your financial results, maybe your forward projections, your legal structure, and um, you know a few, very few things operationally for them to put together a non-binding and very instructive letter of intent. Um, and you know that should start the conversation, right? So. Um, when that happens, then if the seller accepts the letter of intent, um, you know, after some markups some back and forth, some getting it over to David King for, you know, no, you're not going to do this. And no, you can't see that. And yes, we'll agree to this as long as you do that. Well, then that starts exclusivity and that buyer gets a chance to kind of, you know, open our kimono and look at everything. That process is like I've said many, many times before, invasive and accusatory. And so you kind of, you got to prepare yourself for that. As a seller, you're going to find out all the things that are embarrassing to you when you reveal them to somebody else. And if you're doing things like running personal travel through your business or paying for your car with your business or Um, you own your building and you pay yourself a below market or above market rate for more EBITDA or better tax advantage. All those things are normal. There's no savvy buyer who hasn't seen those things before. So get over it. If you've got the right advisors involved, you're going to have to show that stuff anyway. So, but 
you know, kind of foundationally speaking, nail the financials, make sure that um, you don't give up too much too soon. And when you do move into due diligence um, with advice of the right counselor, transaction advisor, disclose everything. For, yes. uh, for a buyer to ignore something about your company, that's on them. That's either poor due diligence or, you know, kind of um, tolerant due diligence. For you as a seller to exclude something from due diligence, that's fraud, right? Yeah. So, you know, once you're in, you're in. You got to go, you know, down the wire. And that's why we recommend whether we're involved or not, get the right advisor in. And this is going to sound like a... Um, a uh, shameless plug for you, but I will tell you that you're a lot more important to the transaction than we are. They can get to an outcome without an investment banker and without a transaction advisor like Candor, but using their traditional corporate attorney or worse yet, their real estate or trust and estates attorney, rather than a skillful M&A attorney, will cost them so much more money in terms of structure, cash up front, potential risk down the road, and any money they would save by not using the right M&A attorney. They just, they need to find somebody who's got lots and lots of reps in the M&A gym. And that's guys like you. I appreciate that. And I always tell clients, uh, selling your business is like getting married. Uh, We all have defects. And before you get married, the other side will know your defects, but you need to make them fall in love with you first. Start with love, then disclose all the defects, then have the wedding day. Smooth sailing. Go without. <laughs> so well said. So, thank you. So Chris, what are the four agreements when selling a business? What, what, what are the Four agreements that a, a business owner should keep. Yeah. So, I mean, the four agreements um, written by Don Miguel Ruiz and kind of repurposed in here. You know, the first one's be impeccable with your words. So we were just talking about that. You just amplified that. Like, look, if you're going to sell your business and you're going to engage after the LOI is done and you move into due diligence, um, do what you say you're going to do. Deliver the stuff on time and be truthful about it, even if it might not look good. Trust the process between a willing buyer and seller with the right advisors involved, a deal will get done in the right way at the right time. If you as a seller are clear about your why for selling, then a deal will get done and you just have to be, you have to be absolutely truthful, even when it's uncomfortable. The other piece, and it kind of connects up with this is don't take anything personally, um, right? A buyer is going to continue to ask questions from their initial data request to their um, you know, diligence tracker that might be anywhere from 30 items to 400 items um, where they ask you for a bunch of information Then when you go into disclosure schedules and all the other documentation that come along with finalizing the sale, the buyer is going to keep asking questions the entire time. Don't take it personally. If it does feel personal, if it does feel too invasive, rely on your more experienced transaction advisor to say, hey, should this piss me off that they're asking for this or should we react to this? 
let your advisor's experience substitute for your own emotional reaction to something. Don't take it personally. Then don't make assumptions. Not every single thing that the buyer is doing um, is strategic. Like um, you might infer something from them not responding to you for 10 days. Maybe the guy was on vacation. Maybe he had a death in the family. Maybe he couldn't get his partners all together for the investment team meeting, so he couldn't respond. It might not be strategic. So don't make an assumption about why they're asking for something or what their um, questions mean. Ask your advisors about those things. Your advisors' assumptions will be a little bit better because they'll be informed by a lot of experience and scar tissue around doing deals. And then lastly, you know, and this is going to sound like, um, you know, almost a homily, but, you know, do your best, right? If, 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 if the buyer wants, really wants to buy your company, they understand what they're buying. Um, on the $215 million transaction that I was talking about, we had a, a 10 plus billion dollar public company buying a five-year-old company that had more than 20 million of EBITDA and growing at 100% a year. Um, when, whenever we hit rocky points in diligence, I would caution the sellers to not take it personally and not make assumptions about what the buyers were saying. And also to remember that they were doing their best, that these people knew what they were buying. And if they expected this smaller, newer company to operate like their bigger, older company, that's on them. That's not on us. Right? Just do your best. Show up. Be truthful. You know. So I, you know, again, I'm repurposing Don Miguel Ruiz's words, but I mean, it works in due diligence too. Well, Kurt, your uh, your touchy feely skills are is just as strong as your technical uh, financial skills, and we're always grateful to have you share them here on this podcast. And everyone, thank you for tuning in to Selling Your Business with David King. Uh, Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it. And please check out my book, Selling Your Business, Begin with the End in Mind, which is available on Amazon. Kirk, we will see you again soon. Thanks, David. Great to be with you. Take care.